Welcome to the Activated People Podcast, the program that showcases social justice topics and the activists fighting to make America a more equitable society. Our mission to activate people and inspire movements. I'm your host, Kofi Annan. The topic of today's conversation is police brutality, specifically that which targets African Americans and people of color. About 1 in 1,000 black men in America can expect to die at the hands of police. That makes African American males two and a half more t- times more likely to die during a police encounter than their white counterparts. Black people account for approximately 30% of police killings, even though we only make up about 13% of the U.S. population. But while these killings, like Michael Scott, Freddie Gray, Botham Jean, usually get a lot of media attention and public attention, it's important to remember that these instances are part of a larger pattern of behavior as African Americans are, generally speaking, far more likely to be subjected to police use of force than their white counterparts. Today we're going to examine some of the root causes, some of the narratives, and then finally some of the potential solutions. My two guests are Mr. J.C. Falk and Alan Davis. J.C. is the founder of An End to Ignorance and Circles of Voices, two Baltimore-based diversity consultant companies that confront the issues of racial discrimination head-on. J.C. was one of the more prominent voices during the 2015 protest triggered by the death of Freddie Gray, the 25-year-old African-American who died as a result of injuries sustained during an arrest by the Baltimore Police Department. Alan Davis, a 20-year retired member of the New York City Police Department and former federal corrections officer, and more recently, an international police advisor with the U.S. State Department. He's an active in the community on issues specifically around criminal justice reform and also holds a Master of Science degree in restorative justice practices. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me today to discuss this topic. Thank you for inviting Thank you. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, before we get started, I, I figure it might be important we establish a baseline for everyone as to what we mean when we say use of force and when we say brutality, where that line is drawn. So, Alan, would you mind kind of giving us a quick definition of, of what exactly is use of force and when does that cross the line to becoming brutality, in your opinion? Okay, so police brutality can be expressed in many forms, many different ways, not only blood, force, trauma. But it, it basically, I would define it as warranted, the unnecessary, even the immoral or unethical use of the police office or the police authority to injure or kill, whether acting under color of law, police policy or procedure, or personal gratification. Some people may only think of police brutality in a, in a modern context, but would you be able to maybe put this into some historical context for our listeners so they kind of understand, oh, this isn't just a current issue. This isn't, didn't just start with like the Freddie Grays or, or even people like Rodney King and things like that. When, when, what, what is the history behind the relationship between African-American communities and the police departments? Well, we didn't have to go back uh, to the inception of this country. The use of force to obtain the country's goals are as American as apple pie, right? Uh, being at its exception, the Revolutionary War, forced slavery, uh, Native people genocide, colonialism, uh, the use of force, domination and control was, and to some extent still is, our strategic policy of this country. Those who control the world events use force or threaten use of force to do it. So... 
policing for African Americans began doing and following enslavement and force uh, with the method of control. So police uh, then called marshals were attacked with returning runaway slaves, for instance. Um, there, there was the law enforcement attack at that point, and that was their job, uh, to, to, to hunt down and, and return runaway slaves. That was probably the first, our first relationship with American law enforcement, right? So it started way back then. So if we could just fast forward to, to let's say, maybe the 80s. A lot of people associate the war on drugs with mass incarceration, but do you think that, that there was also an increase in the in police brutalities and police behaviors and attitudes towards African-Americans that changed then and made things even worse and as a result of the war on drugs? And, and I'll put that question out to either one of you. The war on drugs was a way to kind of uh, eliminate a specific group of people. Of course, the actors who were tasked with carrying out much of this violence, you know, were law enforcement. And that's what law enforcement was created to do to quell the masses, you know, to keep uh, a certain law and order as, as defined by those with power. You know, and the more police you send in and the more uh, people you confront, it's going to be more casualties. So, yeah, whoever created this concept of, of having a war on drugs, no drugs uh, got beat up. You know, <laughs> we're talking about people who were harmed. Yes, and then there's, there's also some... <laughs> some things that I don't think are coincidences, okay? So, like, 1968 happens. It's a big, huge shift for African-Americans in this country around freedom that's going on in 68 and in the 60s. You know, there's lots of turmoil that went on in that, that decade, you know, from the death of King to Kennedy to Malcolm X. But there was something happening, you know, like the, the Civil Rights Act occurred and, you know, the 68 big, huge uprising across the country. Like, when you think about Baltimore, Baltimore was a baby uprising in comparison, 2015 was a baby uh, uprising in comparison to what was happening in 68, because 68, there were cities, major cities burning all over the country. And so it's, uh, it's an interesting thing. Interesting is a, is a weird way to put it, but it's a, if you look, that that happened in 68, this big, huge march for freedom was going on in the decade of the 60s. And then a few years later, Nixon is in office, and they start this thing called war on drugs, which for me, it wasn't a war on drugs. It was a war on people. You know, it was, it was, it was really a, 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 an attack on the black community. Could you just describe what it was like to be there on the ground firsthand and give us your opinion as to why that incident set Baltimore off? Why was that incident so, became such a trigger? I was not an activist before Freddie Gray. So, so I'm, I live five minute a five minute drive from where he was initially injured, and so I, I went over to check that out. By the time I got there, it was all over pretty much. The police were leaving, marching down the street, and like this, and lines marching down the street. It almost felt like a Russian movie or something the way that they were marching, and they marched out of the neighborhood. And then while I was on my way home. Someone told me that the CVS was on fire. And so I drove up to the CVS. I'm standing in front of the CVS while it's burning and watching what's happening there. And it was um, – and it had, been, it had been burning for a little while before I got there. And when I got there, the police were standing around because there were so few police, and they were just letting people do whatever they wanted them to do. And then 
shortly after that curfew started, so they told us to go home. I think it was somewhere around 10 o'clock. They asked us to go home, and probably four or five of those days I didn't go home. I stayed up there until after the police would leave, and I watched the police and what they did, and I watched, you know, the National Guard coming in, and I watched, you know, we probably had three or four different jurisdictions of police coming in here for a CBS that was burned. There were no gunshots. There were no. There was no violence whatsoever against people. There was a CBS that was burning, and I watched and how they treated people on the ground. They were like, you know, uh, uh, they were they pepper spraying people, and I don't know how you want language in here, but they were beating the hell out of people for next to nothing. And you would have police in front of the CBS beating the hell out of black people. But you go not very far away. To it. There, was a, there was a point where the paper juxtaposed these two pictures of showing white people standing out in front of a 7-Eleven protesting, only white people now, in their neighborhood, and they were treating them very nicely and kind and, 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 and humanely. And then at the same time, up in Sandtown, they were beating the hell out of people. They were beating the hell out of black people up in Sandtown. Something about that shifted me. It changed something to me to watch what the police were doing. I knew that the police did that stuff, but I didn't. I hadn't seen it so purely before. So it made me just get really pissed off, and I decided to drop a lot of what I was doing so I can call out a lot of what the police were doing. You know, I, it, to me, it feels like the police are they truly are a force against black people. And I don't mean that they only arrest black people because they don't, but I truly believe that many police officers uh, uh, have this disdain and hatred. Do you believe that the reaction to Freddie Gray's death was a long time coming? Why do you think that this one was such a spark plug? I think first a lot of people there, Kofi, knew um, Freddie Gray. A lot of people knew him, and then also Freddie Gray reminded them of themselves. And so in that area, I read an article a year and a half ago or so, in that one zip code, there were somewhere around 450 people who were in jail from that one zip code, costing the city almost $20 million a year to keep them in jail. Like, it was a huge number. And people are used to the, you go to that. If you go to that neighborhood now, that neighborhood – it's like a – it kind of reminds me of what we used to think of like Beirut back in the day. Helicopters are flying over. There's a dedicated helicopter that flies over that area all the time. It's one of the least – one of the poorest areas in the city, and they're flying a helicopter over that area all the time. And they have police cars down side roads, and they're constantly arresting people in there for next to nothing. Like it, it's just – it's it's – it's mind-boggling. Like, I had been here in Baltimore for five years before I even traveled up there, and, like, I traveled through but never gone to the back streets. You go into the back streets in there, and there's there are neighborhoods that you go into, and they're 80 to 90% boarded up, Kofi and Allen, 80 to 90% boarded up. And when I first got there, I was like, why is this neighborhood looking like this? And the reason why it's looking like that is because the city has not rebuilt it since the death of King. When the, when the uprising happened in 68 now, it's been more than 50 years, and they have not gone in and put the resources in to bring that, that, uh, those neighborhoods back. A lot of those houses that are boarded up in those, those neighborhoods that are 80 to 90% um, 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 unlivable, 
They've been that way for over 50 years. And so that's why the uprising happened. It's not just because of Freddie Gray, but Freddie Gray was like a, like a, like, a, like we, we, won't, we won't take this anymore, basically, is what people got to. We will not take it anymore. And even today, when you look to today, the one thing that's come back in that neighborhood nearly five years later is the CVS, and the neighborhood looks pretty much like it did before the uprising happened. So one more question, Jason, and, and, and I'll give you a chance to talk. But So you started talking a little bit about what happened after Freddie Gray's death. So has there been any positive outcomes of, that, of, the, of the riots? Uh, or were there any changes made policy-wise or, or resources-wise to that community mm-hmm. since the riots? I tell you, so I would, uh, in a, there's been some resources that have gone in there, but, again, not enough. And so for me, um, if you ask, there's different levels that I could answer that question. One, I think for the people, they felt a power that they had not felt for a while. So I, I, um, I love that they could feel that and that they could march and that they can speak in ways that they couldn't. But in terms of resources, no, I don't think that there's been significant resources placed in there. As a matter of fact, the police have pulled out. If you look at the if you look at the statistics, right, of murders and the statistics of violence in Sandtown, they actually went up significantly after the death of Freddie Gray. And people will say, you know, some people blame that on the people who live in the community when it's not. It was the police. The police pulled out. They stopped doing their jobs. They, they I, so we held them accountable for the, the fact that they murdered a man. And then they decided, oh, if you're going to hold us accountable for murdering someone, we're going to pull out. We're going to extract out people from your neighborhoods. And then what it did is it made it so that the worst element in the neighborhood, which is a very small percentage of people, the worst element in the neighborhood now can run roughshod through that community and do whatever it wants to do. Murder rates went significantly up, and they have been up ever since then. We look at Baltimore right now, the murder rate every year – um, since the uprising has been worse than it was the year before the uprising. So that's because there are dangerous people on the ground and the police do nothing to stop them from being dangerous. They so just to, walk through the communities and do whatever they want. So it's worse now on many levels. It's worse than what, what it was. Our city council is just as corrupt as it's ever been. Our mayors are just as corrupt as they've ever been. We've, we've had the loss of a Dixon. She lost – She is out of here because she stole uh, money. Um, um, Catherine Pugh just stepped down. We've had so much corruption in this city, and it doesn't feel like it's – it's not even not feel like it's not better. It's worse than it was before the death of Freddie Gray in this city right now. Hmm. So going back to you, Alan, so some of the things that JC just brought up were that the culture of of these departments are so that they – from the time that they're being uh, indoctrinated into the forces, they are almost trained to to look at black people differently. And that is, is one of the core reasons why they go after African-Americans or treat them differently. Do you agree with that? Well, um, I, I want to talk about why police in general use force as the, as the main staple of control and why black officers kind of go along with that. Uh, even if they whisper among themselves that they don't like it, uh, by and large, we cooperate with that that, that system. And so, if, I, um, if I could just interject one quick statistic that I, I've, I've found while doing some research here. So American police officers kill about a little under 1,000 people a year in general. 
um, right. which is far more than any other uh, developed country in the world. But I, I was wanted to inter- interject that stat there. It is an issue with, with uh, it's more pronounced when it comes to African Americans and people of color, but there is seems to be a culture of just using force a lot faster in general. But go ahead. So uh, police officers, including black police officers, uh, go along with the power structure. You're hired, uh, you're giving instructions, you're trained uh, how to carry out those instructions, and you're given the tool trade uh, to assist you in that endeavor. Force is prioritized uh, uh, to how to deal with people, not treating people with respect and dignity. And, you know, that's just the way the structure has been set up in terms of law enforcement and policing in America. Uh, most officers go along with that system uh, uh, because uh, force is how we are trained to respond to danger. Uh, there are some who see skin color as a threat in and of itself. All right, ever since black folk have been in this country, we've been demeaned, disempowered for economic and political gain. If officers want to partake in these lucrative things, then they have to go along with the, the, the you know, standard operation procedures. So that's why they do it. I don't think it's a big secret among officers that there are serious problems that are in need of, uh, of attention and reform. I don't think the average officer uh, in private <laughs> would deny that. But it's just too dangerous and threatening to that officer's well-being to be too vocal about it, let alone uh, intervene and to speak out. Uh, there are some officers who have. I've seen them do it in my career. I've also seen them fire immediately thereafter for some trumped-up, imagined, or, you know, uh, small, some infraction that, uh, that the majority of officers do and get away with every day. So if you want to put your livelihood and uh, on the line and, you know, but to feed your family and et cetera, then speak out, right? Now, I'm one of those officers who, who spoke out. As God would have it, things politically got aligned where, where, you know, I survived. But it's very dangerous to do that. I think people should speak out, right? I'm not excusing that. If you see the injustice and, and don't say anything about it, then as far as I'm concerned, you're a part of it. Can we talk a little bit about the transparency on this issue? Do we know the full scope of the problem? Part of the, the concern or the complaints from, from activists is that a lot of this, if not most of the, the, uh, the harassment, brutality, and, and uh, excessive use of force, goes unreported. Would you agree with that uh, to either one of uh, you? And then how do you, how do you go about fixing that? Okay, so you're absolutely right. First of all, only 50% of any crimes or any injustice are reported. People don't trust the police to the extent that only 50% of people even bother dialing 911 for any reason, right? So people don't, don't report the injustice. In fact, the only people who really know of the injustice fully or to a greater extent than the public are the people inside that agency. And, and, I, and that, for the reason I just mentioned, they, they don't really speak that much about it. If you expect the people who uh, rely on that agency for a livelihood to be the primary actors to change that mindset or culture, I think you're sadly mistaken, right? It's going to take the, the, the populace. And that means the populace are going to have to educate themselves as to how these systems are really run, or who are the main uh, actors in terms of keeping these systems uh, operating the way they do, and act politically and economically against those actors. And while I, I understand uh, someone 
being uh, angry and, and dissatisfied with the actions of a single police officer. Uh, and I, and I, I, you know, we have to hold every officer accountable. I get that. But that police officer has no power, right? He has no power. You, can, you could execute every police officer involved in police brutality and it won't change the system. Uh, and I'm not, of course, you know, as a police officer, I'm certainly not advocating that. But I'm just using that as a problem. You have to uh, address power structures political and economic structures if you want to change systems. And we'll get, we'll get into that. But uh, this whole uh, transparency thing is something, you know, typically law enforcement is going to resist, right? And they're going to resist it because people enjoy power and control. There are tons of times when you think about it in, this, in a community like Sandtown. People have, lots of people there have little or nothing, man. And if, if, a, if, if a cop if, or you know, a few cops pulls them down into an alley and beats the hell out of them, they're not going to report it. What are they going to do? You know, like what, what they have nothing. They can't go after an entire system. So the, you have the individual cops who, 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 who did it, but then if you go after them, you're going to be dealing with the FOP, a, a guy living in a neighborhood that's 80% boarded up and has next to nothing has no real power to go after that. It, we, we showed that with the, um, after, after Freddie Gray's death. The state's attorney tried to go after the, the six cops who murdered him and couldn't get anywhere. You know, those cops got back pay. They, they, they had to get, they went through some stuff, but they got back pay after all was said and done because none of them were convicted, and, and, and some of them are still working. So, so it, 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 you don't, most people know that when the police show up in Sandtown, you scatter. You don't even, like, engage them. Most If you ride through, I took a police ride about a year and a half ago, rode through, and as this police car was coming through the neighborhood, people would scatter. It was like, you know, it was like somebody was shining a bright light on people who had not seen light, and they were, like, scattering. You know, like, it was, just, it was so people don't trust police, and the truth is, given the way that the police have treated them there, they shouldn't trust them. Like, talk about transparency, the kinds of things that, pe- that, that police were doing to people in these communities. Like, they're, they're, with the DOJ, when the DOJ came in here, like, they were raping women for uh, saying, if you, you know, give me a blowjob, I won't, I won't give you a ticket. They were uh, uh, cavity searching women on their cars in front of their neighbors, you know, pulling up their skirts and cavity searching them out in the open in their neighborhoods. They were beating the hell out of people and letting them just stay there. Like they, there were so many things that they were doing. That, and even that, we have that, and that's not even full transparency. The DOJ came in here and said, this is horrible what you're doing, and it didn't show everything that the city was doing, and it also didn't say the names of the officers who were involved in the events. It was all anonymous. So there's no transparency whatsoever around you know, what, what, what goes on around this stuff. It just keeps going. It keeps going. It keeps going as if the system believes it cannot survive without doing this stuff to black people on the ground. Hmm. So staying on the topic of transparency for a minute, so body cameras, one of the proposed solutions or one of the, the things that a lot of activists like to turn to is police body cameras, hoping that this could be a potential way to, to curb or deter officers from engaging in, in illegal activity. Uh, how do you mm-hmm. feel about that? I, I tell you, that those body cameras are a joke because they can turn them on and off. If you could have them on 100% of the time except for when they go to the bathroom, then it would be one thing. 
I was standing with a police officer in my neighborhood, which is stationed north, probably five months ago, talking with them, and they can call in and have them turn those things off. So they could do, they can get to a situation where they're doing something wrong. When they first, in, in Baltimore, when they first put those body cameras on them, there were a couple of guys, there's, I think there's like a delay when you turn it on or something happened where there was a, a police officer who was planting evidence and he didn't realize that his camera was on. So he planted the evidence under a rock and then he arrested this guy and it turns out later when they look back at the footage that he was planting the evidence while he had the camera on, he thought he had turned it off. So if you could turn it off, that does not serve us. If, if, if the culprit can turn it off, it would be like me having a camera pointed at myself and going, I'm, I'm beautiful, I'm lovely, I'm doing the good stuff. But if I was going to do something dangerous, I could just turn the camera off. That's what they can do. Those cameras do not do what we intended for them to do. There was just a whole lot of money spent that does not give us what we intended. We intended to look at their every action. And those cameras, the, the way that those cameras are set up, it makes it so that we can't look at their every action because they have control of when that camera is on or off. One of the, the other deterrents is lawsuits, or at least the, the, the perception is that if we're able to, to sue them for more money, then this could be a, a deterrent to wrongful actions. Uh, how do you either one of you feel about that? <laughs> well, uh, the evidence from New York City Police Department, uh, New York City plays exorbitant amounts of money out on, in, in these situations, not admitting to any guilt, of course, but to settle these uh, lawsuits. And you know, it doesn't have a huge impact on how the police operate because the city just considers it the price of doing business, <laughs> right? So uh, while there is some impact in, in poorer jurisdictions, but having said that, uh, thus far, uh, most jurisdictions, especially the larger ones, have absorbed the cost of doing business. While I think it's a, it's a worthwhile effort because it does have an effect on decisions made in terms of how the criminal justice system operates, but it's probably minimal. Gotcha. JC, did you want to add something to that? Yeah, like we, we're in a system right now that spends about $80 billion a year to keep people in jail. $80 billion, man. And then you're talking, when you're talking about the, the lawsuits, it's interesting what has been going on with the lawsuits over the course of the last couple of decades. So I, I want to point out, let's go to L.A. when Rodney King was beaten, okay? Rodney King was beaten by police officers there, and we saw it, like, really glaringly, that it was blatant, the beating. That's, you know, we could see it. It was black and white. We could look at it on the news. The guy was hit. 52 times by those batons, and he walked away with $52 million, man, $52 million. Freddie Gray gets killed, and his family walks away with $6 million. Have, the, have black lives devalued that much? That one guy gets beaten and lives, and he gets $52 million, and the other guy gets killed, and he gets $6 million. His family gets $6 million. So those lawsuits... And it doesn't – how much does it harm the police department, really, right? So in Baltimore, which is this uh, mind-boggling, the police department gets about 40% of the city's budget. Get that, 40%. Like, they don't – they're not taking that money out of the police, the, the police department's budget. The city is paying that or insurance is paying that. So they just keep doing what they do. If they, if they were losing – 
money from their budget, where they had to get rid of officers, where they had to get rid of cars, where they had to get rid of computers and all that stuff like that, maybe it would have an impact. But it's not having that kind of impact in Baltimore. In Baltimore, they continually get more and more and more money rather than that money going into um, um, recreation centers. Since I've been here, I've been here about 10 years, they've closed about half of the recreation centers in the city. For me as an um, inner-city kid, I remember those recreation centers. I would go to those places and just to have a building to go to and play some pool and keep me off the street probably saved me from the fate that a lot of other, my other friends went through when I was a kid. Here, they're shutting down places like that, and they're continually giving more and more and more money to the police. So I don't know that these lawsuits actually really help the problem. I want to talk a little bit about civilian re review panels. Research shows that jurisdictions that have those panels tend to actually get more complaints filed against the police. Do you think that this is a potential way to, to, to curb some of these numbers? Uh, well, I think any strategy where you get citizens more involved in the decision-making about how agencies conduct themselves is a benefit, Okay. That's not to say that civilian panels are the, are the solution because they're, in and of themselves, they're not. But anytime we get people involved in, in, in decision-making, that's a plus. Having said that, uh, most uh, civilian review panels in this country have no real power. They make a recommendation. And the chief of police can take it or leave it, okay? That's number one. Uh, and most of them have no real strong investigative apparatus. Right? They have a bunch of concerned citizens. Uh, some of them may even be, you know, professionals, lawyers or whatever. But, you know, it's not like they can go in and interrogate an officer. Uh, it's kind of a somewhat of a superficial approach to a very serious problem. I agree with you, Alan. Like, and I believe that those civilian review boards, yes, you will get more because people start to believe that something's going to happen. And I think that's worse to do that and have people come forward, and then nothing happened. It, it, I think it, 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 it hurts more than it helps, actually. And I, I think anything that you set up that doesn't give people real teeth, that doesn't give the people real actionable stuff that they can do to shut people down who are harming them is a waste of time. It's just, a, it's just taking you off into a direction where you're doing something, but it doesn't make a difference what you're doing. You know, so getting more uh, uh, people to step forward and say something, that's important. But if nothing happens with it, why are you risking them like that? Why are you bringing them out into the open, exposing them in that way, if you don't intend to shut down the people who are causing them harm? It, it seems to me counterproductive. Going over to the district attorneys, what role do they play in holding police accountable, and is it possible for them to hold police officers accountable given that they're so, they have such a close relationship with, with the police and kind of rely on the police more times than not in order to prosecute cases? Are, are they even helpful in, in most cases? Well, I, I would say, so what I know is a district attorney here in Baltimore, Marilyn Mosby, and I tell you as an activist on the ground, um, I've been sorely disappointed with her. I know she has a, a huge reputation around the country, but um, I've been sorely disappointed with her in the city. She does not. She 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 will go after the, the little guy on the ground, like with the fervor of uh, like somebody stole something from her. You know, like I, I'm telling you, she is like really hard 
from the guy that's at the bottom. And then at the same time, she, will, she put forth those charges with the police. She had to do that at the time, but then dropped the cases fairly quickly when she felt like she couldn't win. When they, there was a, there, uh, there's a guy here, his name is Kevin Davis, no, I mean Kevin Keith Davis, who was accused of um, killing someone, with a, with, and, and, and they tried this dude, I think it's four times, four times to, to get him. Guy on the bottom. There's a, a guy who was murdered by the police here in Baltimore who killed um, uh, uh, Tawanda Jones is the sister that I know, and um, Tyrone West is the guy that was killed. He was beaten to death by 12 to 15 cops, not shot, beaten to death in front of his neighbors, in front of 30 or 40 of his neighbors back in 2013, I believe it was, and they left this guy for dead. And that case has not even gone to court it hasn't even hit the courts. Like, she's been on the ground every week. She does this thing called West Wednesday, and she's been out there every Wednesday since the death of her brother, more than five years, every Wednesday, and they have not brought charges against those police officers. So I think that they're too, the state's attorneys are too married to the police in order to get the job done properly. They, 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 um, it, it doesn't seem to me that that's something that works for the people. It sounds like it's something that works more for the state's attorney and for the police, but it doesn't work for the people who are being harmed by them. Alan, from your perspective as an officer, did you ever see the district attorney take a more aggressive approach towards dealing with these types of cases? Uh, so um, it's possible for the district attorneys, uh, the state's attorneys, to uh, prosecute police misconduct with the same fervor that they prosecute other types of crimes, but it's not probable, okay? Uh, and because of the relationship, but, you know, in the end of the day, uh, it's not politically uh, suggestive that you do that if you're a district attorney or a state attorney because your uh, tenure uh, and politically, uh, you know, they, they, they are elected, right? So, like, Ms. Mosley, the act of her even attempting to prosecute five police, so you said she had to do it. I beg to differ. She did not have to do it. As a matter of fact, she put her career and her uh, livelihood at risk by taking uh, an unprecedented risk to go after uh, officers uh, charged with, uh, suspected of, of killing someone unjustly. So, and, and let me just speak to, to this issue. When we, uh, when people take, and I've taken risks, right, in my, as a police officer in my department uh, to, to, to talk about injustices, and all I got was people saying, you know better than the rest of them, right? You could have did more. Uh, you know, why did you, you know, what did you do for the last, you know, you might have did one or two good things, but basically you're no good. And uh, that type of response is a loud voice in, in, within, within these agencies that tells every uh, person of color who's in a position of authority to mind his own, you know, business and not get involved because even – the people who you're going to speak up for are going to attack you, right? And I've seen that. Uh, we, don't forget, it's not only white agencies and white uh, institutions that, uh, that sit idly by or that prompt these kinds of uh, situations. We have black organizations, too, who uh, sit on the sidelines, who, who respond very superficially, who really don't. We have national police agencies, uh, you know, state uh, police uh, organization, some of which I, I was in, ran, right, uh, who basically, you know, might give a little shout out, you know, we don't think that was good, but they're not a force to be reckoned with in terms of the power structure. They don't put themselves 
uh, on the line. And some of that is just, just in a, being ineffective and not giving a damn. But a lot, some of it, there will be a lot more people in the agencies speaking out if they weren't going to be attacked with the same uh, fervor and, and anger that uh, we give to our white counterparts. So, uh, yeah. you know. Yeah, but, the, yeah. but there's a part, though. You know, so, so when you said Mosby and she didn't have to, I guess in a far-fetched scenario, she didn't have to. But if you were in Baltimore and you saw what was going on in Baltimore, this city was scared. This city was scared that that uprising that happened was going to get worse. You had children throwing bricks at police officers at Montgomery Mall. You had people burning down the CVS. You had crowds of hundreds of people marching the streets of Baltimore pissed off. You say that she didn't have to. She didn't have to, but she also didn't have to stop this city from burning further. I think her filing those charges against the police gave the people something. It gave the people something to hold on to because if she hadn't given the people something to hold on to, it could have gotten a whole lot worse in Baltimore. I was on the ground. I saw it. I witnessed it, and the city was scared. They shut the city down, shut it down because of a CVS that was burning and because of their fear that it might get worse than what it, what it, uh, what it was. So she didn't do that out of any altruistic intent. She did it because she had to, I believe, to in order to – to shut down the possibility that more of the city would be burning. You were there. I wasn't in Baltimore. If that, if that was your observation, that's fine. All I'm saying is we're putting uh, black agency heads and people who want to uh, address some of these issues, uh, there's nothing that they could do to satisfy the anger and the fear that the people have that, will, will, that will, someone will say, you know, unless you die like Malcolm and Martin, uh, then you you know you could you're gonna nev- never be given any kind of positive attribute in terms of your official action because you're part of the system. So so I would like to 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 actually frame this in in a different way because JC I think I think your point is well taken. So one of the things that people say well could help to reduce police brutality towards African American communities is that we need to hire more black police officers. Mm-hmm. But to to JC's point. Uh, a lot of times we've all we've all also seen videos of African American police officers being just as brutal towards African Americans. So is that a solution, and or is it mm-hmm. in and of itself a solution, or, or or is there something just culturally within the department that they recruit certain types of people, or or do they just change them once they get in there? Because it seems like the ones that that uh, that do recruit, the ones that do kind of rise up through the ranks and things like that regardless of their race, we also see problems with them as well. So, Alan, if, if maybe you could kind of speak to the point of does diversifying a police force, is it actually a, a solution? Well, diversifying a police force is uh, a necessity because uh, uh, police forces should uh, reflect the demographics of the place that they're supposed to serve and protect. So that's a, that diversity is necessary. Uh, also, uh, while even if the majority of those people uh, are not helpful in terms of things that the, the community wants. Uh, if, you're, if there's going to be anyone in the pool that's going to be helpful, it's got to come from among that group, even if it's a small percentage. Uh, that's number one. And number two, uh, the way we recruit police, uh, military background, aggressiveness, the, the kind of standards that we require from police attract a certain type of individual. 
until we change those standards, we're going to get aggressive, uh, you know, warrior-type personalities that believe that they're uh, there to, uh, uh, to control and instruct and, and, you know, even confront the members of the community. Uh, that's just uh, the present police mentality. So, no, it's not the answer, right? Uh, police officers in general uh, have vir- virtually no power to change their agency. They go along to get along and, and begin to be believed. And, and let's face it, you know, most people are kind of brainwashed as to how the system operates and what, what it's really doing. They're trained to believe that, hey, we, you know, we're nice and shining armor and, you know, we're fighting for a just cause, etc. I mean, there, of course, is that, that group who understand that they're involved in criminal behavior and they just don't want to get caught. But generally speaking, the average cop thinks, hey, look, I'm doing something uh, that's just. Now, in terms of black police officers, an officer comes to the department, if he's black, he might come in with a certain perception, I'm going to make things right and I'm going to be fair and just and equitable, especially when dealing with with my people. And then he hits a brick wall saying, well, that's not how this – I remember – one, the first few months that I was on patrol, a white officer came up to me and said, we don't do that brother, S-H-I-T. And he was sending a message that don't have no special relationship with black people, <laughs> right? You, you're not black now, you're blue. And, you know, that's the mindset in terms of how black officers are orientated in the profession. So if, if we don't look for and try to uh, cultivate some sort of intelligent, relationship with, with black officers, then we're going to suffer at the hands of uh, all white uh, police departments. And I'm not saying, and I've seen black officers do some of the most horrendous things that white officers do, okay? So I'm not saying that because he's a black officer, okay, he's going to be oh, very, very much different. That's not the case, all right? Generally speaking, you, you may get someone who's more empathetic. The odds are if there is any empathy in that department, it may come from a person, an officer of color. Uh, that's not to say, you know, it won't, can't come from a white officer, but the odds are, uh, because of our experiences and our background, it's going to come, uh, come from someone of color. But I just would like to call on folks that while on this path to, to reform and, and holding uh, law enforcement officers accountable, which we must do, and, and to punish those responsible uh, for, for causing death and destruction in our communities, which we must do, if our consensus is that nobody's going to dismantle policing in America. My thing is, what's the solution? So uh, all those who want to just be angry and, and, and talk tough and, you know, not trust people and hate and all that, okay, we've been doing that since Harry Tubman, right? Nothing has changed. So my thing is, we, we need to get about the business of finding some solutions to these problems and focus our time, energy, and effort to uh, where they will do the most good Screaming, howling, and praying, and praying. You know, it just seems to me that we've been doing that since the 60s and nothing has changed, and we need to look at some new strategies. I'm going to disagree with you on that. Black people couldn't ride on the front of the bus when I was born. I can now ride on the front of the bus. And, and I, I'm not saying that things are the way that they should be, but there's been a lot of stuff that has changed. And what it looks like to me is that a lot of stuff has changed because people have been screaming and yelling and because people have said enough and because they put their lives and their bodies on the line to make sure that that thing happens. You said that you don't think that the police department can be dismantled. I believe it can. When you look at the, the, the numbers of police officers, right, in Baltimore, there's less than, it's about 3,000 
police officers, this is including the janitor all the way up to the chief of police. There's no way in the world, if 10% of the city said enough, that 3,000 police officers would not be able to contain that 60,000 that, that, that 60, people. So the people always have the power to, 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 to break this system down, always have the problem. The, the, where the issue comes in is that the people, one, have not stood in that way. A, a large enough percentage hasn't stood in that way, and the other part of it is that the system keeps fighting back with the people who do. So we kind of get in this stalemate place where the system keeps winning because it makes people afraid. What would either of you recommend the average citizen, the average person listening right now, what should they do? We need to focus on the power structures, all right, the political and, and economic structures that create and empower and control law enforcement and how law enforcement is practiced in our communities. It's disastrous for the future of black people and how we have to live in, 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 in under the kind of oppressive arm of many uh, law enforcement officers. But uh, the solutions uh, really – uh, need to be well thought out. It can be done in a calm and calculated and intelligent way to get results. And that means attacking the structures that create this system in the first place. Okay? You can hold every individual officer accountable for whatever he her, or she ever did, but that's not going to change the system. If people, number one, made themselves aware of what's going on, right, attended uh, all the meetings, you know, uh, make, you know keep abreast, there are people in the black community who are educated professionals, who are capable of doing the necessary research, who are capable of uh, attending uh, the legislative sessions, who are uh, capable of monitoring the behavior of our elected politicians, and uh, who also vote for that mayor or that political leader who appoints the people who have been tasked with policing our community. You said anger won't change the system. I disagree with that. I think that, I think that anger will um, um, change the system. I think that we are taught to not um, respond angrily to things that should make us angry. If somebody kills my daughter, I'm going to be angry, and I should be angry. If somebody hurts my daughter, I will be angry and should be angry and should have the right to respond in a way that would um, exact her freedom. You know, like I should have that. And in this country, we're taught to not re re respond in that way. And I think what what we should do with America, if you look at it at any point, it doesn't matter at the, its inception or anywhere in between, where America changes is where America gets pushed to the brink of destruction. And it's sad that America is that way, but it was when it gets pushed to this, this, the, 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 you know, the Civil Rights Act, you know, the Civil War, the, you know, everything. It seems like this country doesn't learn until it gets pushed all the way to the brink of destruction, and then it starts doing the right things. And I think that we are in a place right now where this system needs to be pushed. Like we, the, the, the way that this system is operating with the people right now, it's like the people don't matter. It's like there's certain people up at the top that matter, and then the vast majority of us don't matter. And until the people at the top, that little tiny percentage of people who are controlling everything right now, just pushed to the brink of destroying this, this wonderful life that they've created for themselves at the expense of everyone else, it won't change. So I think we should be doing everything to, to push this thing to the point of dismantlement, to, to push it to that so that this system can change once and for all and be what it espouses it is. Well, thank you so much, gentlemen, both of you. Right? Honestly, this has been a, a really fascinating and spirited discussion. I know there's probably a lot left on the table that we would like to discuss. 
and, and we could discuss this probably another hour or so and, and still only be scratching the surface because it's such a rich issue that has uh, so many so many complexities and, and moving parts to it. However, uh, we are out of time. I would like to encourage our listeners to visit our website, theactivatedpeople.com, to learn more and to reach out to other activists who are working on, on this issue and other issues that are helping to, to make our, our society better. Thank you again, Alan. Thank you again, JC. You guys have been awesome. Thank you. Appreciate it. And Alan, thanks for the conversation. I know there's some tough questions in there, but I appreciate it. I love tough questions.